just pause and think a bit more. When things are moving so fast, it's ever more important that you have time to think. And, you know, sometimes people say you got to think fast. And yeah, we can think fast. But when things are very important, you need to pause and take moments and actually without the noise and the chaos and just digest what your complex situations. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of the Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, sponsored by CBRE. CBRE is the global leader in real estate operations, providing solutions to the world's largest energy, oil and gas companies. CBRE supports their clients' facilities both upstream and downstream without compromising safety by delivering strategies that optimize operations, reduce costs, and risks. Unlock the power of your energy, oil, and gas portfolio with CBRE. Learn more at www.cbre.com forward slash EOG. All right, before I introduce this week's guests, I wanted to ask everyone to support the show, as always, by leaving a review in iTunes. It only takes a few moments. And I haven't gotten any lately. Come on, people. Also, if you're interested in getting your hands on some OGGM laptop hard hat stickers, check out the show notes for a 10-second survey, and we'll get those shipped off to you. All right, let's get into it. I'm sitting here today with Brent Bruff, Chief Commercial Officer at Inflow Control. How are you today, Brent? Hey, I'm doing good, Paige. Thanks for asking. Good. How about you? Not too shabby, just fighting the allergies like I do every week. So, <laughs> come on, spring. Well. How did you get started in the industry? So I got started in the industry. I guess I I needed a job at the time. So I was going to school in Calgary, Alberta. I originally grew up in northern Manitoba, which is about a thousand miles north of Minnesota for the folks south of the Canadian border, small town. So when I was going to school in Calgary, needed to find a way to make some money and found a job in the oil field doing cementing for a company that was called Canadian Frackmaster, which later became BJ Nausco. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I love Calgary. It's so beautiful. That's a fantastic city. Mm-hmm. So I ended up getting, yeah, I ended up getting into that industry just by default of needing money at the time. Yeah. Oh, okay. So there was no like, oh, I want to do oil and gas or, you know, it was just, hey, I'm broke. <laughs> there was not a career focused entry into the oil and gas industry. I grew up in a pretty industrial town. Mining was hard rock mining, shaft mining, you had to go underground. So, you know, being used to doing physical labor was nothing new to me. And when I was out there, I actually was studying chemical engineering in Calgary. And the goal for me was, you know, very interested in alternative energy fuel cells. And at the time, this was the late 90s, where that wasn't something that there was many jobs, uh, you know, available. So for me, it was just a matter of finding a job to be able to pay for food and rent. So it was pretty straightforward. Yeah. Okay. So what made you go further into it? I think I just got hooked. Once I started, it was, you know, it's a pretty intense. And back then compared to now, the industry was a lot more rough around the edges and, you know, yelling and getting people to do things in a different manner than it is today in terms of the collaboration and and a bit softer communication wasn't again new because I grew up in a pretty rough environment in Flin Flon. So the industry itself was 
pretty diverse because you got to learn quite a bit from mechanical side of things, the chemistry side of things. And it was pretty fascinating uh, industry and you had to move pretty fast. So I think the excitement of the energy and the need to move fast because time was money, so to speak, you know, kind of captivated your interest. And it's such a broad industry that you can continually learn and never get bored. So there's always something new to learn if, if you choose to learn. That's true. That's very true. So after, where'd you go from there? So worked in the field there throughout Western Canada and then managed to make my way into the office designing hydraulic frack jobs. And obviously, I guess as most of your listeners know about fracking. So I spent a lot of time doing frack design and, you know, working in and out of the office between Calgary and then Red Deer, Alberta, doing jobs around Western Canada. And then as I got into the office and starting to do some of the business development and technical engagement with the oil and gas companies, I found that I really enjoyed engaging in a more personal relationship manner. So I really started to enjoy that BD side of the business. Still had the technical side that drew me into the industry, but I really enjoyed that BD side. And and that then got me into more of the different sides of the business from a business development perspective and technical engineering perspective. For a little company called Slumberger, right? (laughs) (laughs) It was. It wasn't. So I started with a company that is no longer around Canadian Trackmaster, which was well services or pumping, you know, coil tubing, cementing, hydraulic fracturing. And then I didn't jump into Slumberger or get in Slumberger right away. It was actually a few smaller companies. One was called Promore, which was acquired by Core Labs, where they used some downhole tools to monitor fracks in real time to try to optimize the hydraulic frack process based on the pressures. So I got to learn quite a bit, some fantastic people there, and then moved on to a few other smaller companies. And most people at that time, especially my dad, they were saying, stay in a job, you know, you need to put your time in. But I was very much of a different cloth. I said, well, if I'm not learning something, why am I staying here? So I had moved from a couple jobs to a couple jobs. And I had a really fortunate experience of having some fantastic mentors along the way that they took the time to teach from their experiences and also to say, hey, if you're not learning here, you should go find something else. And I stumbled my way into Slumberger by some project engagement and met some fantastic people. And my former manager at the time, Lars Hendricks, pulled me into Slumberger. And it was a great experience. Yeah, you definitely got to do some traveling, huh? Yeah, yeah, I did. Correct. Yeah, managed to leave Canada and move to Russia. At the time, our first child was born when we were posted in Russia. My wife stayed back in Calgary and and gave birth to her. And and then when the baby was old enough for her daughter, she packed up her bags reluctantly. And my wife and our daughter moved to Russia. How long were you there? Just less than two years. So the movement and the rotation and the industry overseas is typically a couple of years each place, depending on how the business cycle goes. So we moved into Russia and it's actually not in Moscow or St. Petersburg where everyone typically says, okay, where do you live in Russia? It was actually Sacklin Island. So I'll spin it back to you, Paige. If you know where Sacklin Island is, I will buy you a steak dinner. <laughs> Looks like I'm buying my own steak dinner. <laughs> yeah. So, so it's north of Japan. And oh. for those that don't know, if you look on the map, Russia is a pretty large country, just like the United States. It's on the east coast of Russia. So you find the map and you see where Japan is and then just go north of there. There's a small island, kind of looks like a dolphin-shaped island. And out there, there's a lot of really large projects. At the time, big projects that are run by Sacklin Energy, ExxonMobil. Shell was a big partner in SEIC project at the time. And, and that's all changed quite a bit. To, you know, This is well over a decade ago. Well, but I mean, it was a fantastic it... experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, also given the circumstances. 
of yeah, a, a, a lot's changed between now and then. That's for sure. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, but at the time, this was 2007. So very different interest at the time. But I think it was pretty interesting because my wife, when you know, she took some convincing to move out there, and I don't know if it was my wife that took more convincing or her family to allow her to go to somewhere so remote. But it was a great experience. Lovely people. You know, we had a great experience with the people we got to work with, and again. Personally, I had the ability to work with some fantastic people around me and that were my managers. So back to that point I made earlier, I had a real nice benefit of having great mentors along the way that I got to learn from. So felt fortunate. Yeah. Yeah. So then you left Russia and went on over to Aberdeen. Aberdeen. Yes, that's correct. And very different mix, a bit different weather. The projects <laughs> yeah. were... Yeah, were uh, yeah, it was good. Aberdeen's a, a much more established market than obviously where we were living in Yuzno Sakhalinsk, but it was still, again, a great experience. Wife got to, to learn how to drive on the wrong side of the road. So for all my British friends, yes, it is the wrong <laughs> side of the road. So that was a challenge in itself. But when we were there, I was, you know, obviously it's a pretty intensive industry. So you're working quite a lot of hours. So you need to, your spouse or significant other needs to be able to find their feet and start to learn how to get along. So get around and being in Aberdeen versus Russia it was a lot easier for her to, you know, meet people. And obviously English was the first language, so it was a lot easier right. for her to communicate. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Get that. Then you moved over to Norway. I moved to Norway. Yeah. So if everyone remembers the 2008 crisis when Lehman Brothers collapsed and the world was all going vertical nosedive, we were in the middle of that. And so we were transferring from Aberdeen over to Stavanger, Norway which is on the, the southwest coast of Norway. And yeah, we were in the middle of that period at the time where the economy was pretty shaky. We didn't know what was going on, but it was still, again, uh, had more people around me that were very supportive. They said, just, just trust us. It's a good move for your career. So just go, you'll learn a lot. And they were right. You know, fantastic managers, Gordon Duncan, Phil Ward in, in Slumberjay. They were really supportive very firm managers, but very caring in terms of how they would deliver teaching experiences on what's important to do from a management perspective, what's important to do from a professional perspective. So again, very fortunate for working under these people. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like you had a great time. I mean, I'm sure culture shock was the thing, jumping around everywhere. It's, <laughs> it's different. And I think it depends how you look at it. There's a, there's a shock. And then if you look at the embrace, anyone who likes to travel, and keeps you know an open mind. Just understand it's it's just very different. Most you know humans and our species are very similar across the world. Most people have similar enjoyments and wants and needs, but there are stark differences on behaviors. So once you get past that, it's a fantastic experience to go through. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What happened after Slumberger? So my wife and I, when we were in Stavanger, it was. When the rebound of the oil industry started coming back, the shale revolution was occurring in, in the U.S. You know, the industry was very buoyant. The hydrocarbon prices were going vertical. So there was a lot of projects coming through and it was a very interesting time. There was a lot of money going into the venture capital side of things. And inside the North Sea, there was a lot of venture capital money being thrown or invested into small startups. So I started doing my MBA in 2009. and was very intrigued with this idea of taking capital and deploying it onto new technology startups to build companies. So given Slumberger is quite a big company, you know, you have 
limited options to have that entrepreneurial side of the business. So mm-hmm. it was a long back and forth with my wife and, you know, should I take an opportunity to leave to a small company? And an opportunity came up with a business that was backed by Statoil, which is now called Equinor, the big, large Norwegian company. So when it was named Statoil at the time, they had a technology venture division. And there was a gentleman, Richard Erskine, headed it up and was actually one of the two gentlemen. The other was Bjarne Lee, who heads up Verdane Capital. They had done the interview after the CEO at the time, Torger Skillingstad, had said, yeah, I think this guy could be a, a good fit. So all three of the gentlemen, I learned fantastic amounts of information, professionalism from great, great mentors. So I took the opportunity to leave Slumberger, big, safe, technical job, yeah. which a lot of people at the time, notably my wife's friends said, you guys are crazy. Why are you leaving Slumberger? No one does this, you know? And I took the risk at the time to go to a small startup. And Resman was this company that had financial backing from Statoil Technology Invest and Verdane Capital. And Verdane Capital had experience in investing in technology companies that were then sold off onto other large service companies. So for me, I was like, it, it matched my technical excitement of being a techie. And then also the ability for me, you know, personally wanting to learn how to grow a business in the energy industry. So I managed to get two birds with one stone and it was a fantastic journey. Awesome. All right. So that leads us to your current role as chief commercial officer. So let's just get that out of the way. What is a chief commercial officer? I guess it depends on the company you're at. It can be like anything from a variety of roles. So in our company, so Inflow Control, we're a Norwegian technology-based company founded in Norway. It was founded by three gentlemen that had retired from Statoil, now named Equinor, and they were focused on reservoir recovery. One key note that the listeners might not know about in Norway, it has some of the highest recovery factors from their oil reservoirs. And that's not by luck. That's actually by science, engineering, and application of both of those science and engineering applications. So they had focused inside their careers, a lot of it was on how to recover more oil from the reservoirs that you have found in an efficient manner. And that's a huge benefit for the stakeholders and the the tax benefit of the Norwegian society. So if I back now to the CCO role here in our company, I look after our regional businesses. So what's engaged with our customers around the world can encompass the operations, encompass the business development, encompass some of the, the technology applications. So it's a wide, wide role, so to speak. Okay. And where are you living now? <laughs> so I'm, I'm currently living in Abu Dhabi in the UAE. So many people would know Dubai. I guess Dubai is just 50 minutes down the road from where we're here in Abu Dhabi. And oh, Abu Dhabi is the, yeah. No, no, it's a great place. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, now that we've gotten through all that, let's talk about leadership, Brent. What is leadership to you? It's a tough question. So for me, leadership is being able to steward the team in the right direction and trying to get the most out of the team for a given set of goals, but also to make sure that you're taking care of your team. I think the the role of a leader is to actually be there to support your team to be successful. You know, and it's not always easy. People are, are very different and that, that's also what makes it quite exciting. But I think leaders have a stewardess, stewardship, pardon me, responsibility to make sure that you're, you're taking care of your team and, and making sure that they're growing and getting the most of what they can achieve. So you said it's not easy, obviously. It's not so easy being a leader. Do you have an example of when it wasn't 
so easy when it was actually a really difficult time? Yeah. So I try to think back, I guess, sometimes two reflections maybe is having communication barriers. And maybe one example, I know my first leadership role was when I was in Russia and I was quite young. I was, you know, 29 years old working inside Summerjay and there was, you know, language barriers. And then there's also perception barriers because this young man came in for a certain role, being a manager of some people. And there's challenges overcoming that stigma and very hierarchy based in Russia at the time. So, you know, that was a big challenge on trying to enter on how to gain and earn respect from the team, because you're not going to be successful as a leader if you don't have the respect of your team and vice versa. You need the team to respect one another to be able to achieve the goals that you have together. So that's one example, I think, from Russia from a practical perspective. But then also when the team's not able to communicate, such as when we all went through COVID, when you're trying to, like we doubled the size of inflow control through COVID. And it was a really exciting period. Yeah, it was a very exciting period, but it's also a very bizarre period because, you know, we have hired all of these great individuals around the world during COVID. And some of the people we never met for two years. So the whole onset of the relationship, a professional relationship was through Microsoft Teams or Skype or Zoom. And so that was a very bizarre way and having to learn and find your rhythm on how to communicate in leadership roles and also trying to learn how people are working and how you're working with them. It was an interesting challenge. I look back in on hindsight and kind of chuckle, but at the time it was a bit more stressful challenge, but you know, like the world, we all succeeded and we're moving on. Wow. That's crazy that you doubled in size. I haven't heard a story like that before. It's a rare story. I have to be honest. <laughs> we're really fortunate on the business on what happened through COVID. So we had the opportunity that is very much an anomaly, what happened in COVID. So the technology that our company has developed and applies within the oil industry, it helps oil and gas companies produce their reservoirs more efficiently by managing the reservoir. So you put our autonomous valves into the reservoir and they manage when you have a high water cut section of the well, the valves will start to autonomously choke that high water cut zone. So when oil was down at $40, you know, oil companies and the engineering application, every dollar counted even more so because they had much more limited budget. So the engineering that was put on to designing the well was a lot more scrutinized. So people were making sure that every dollar counted. So oh, that's yeah. kind of how we got lucky through the downturn. Well, that makes sense. That makes sense. And congratulations on that. Goodness. Uh, no, thanks. It was a great team. The team did the work. And again, back to your question about challenges with the leadership is, making sure that you have the right team and and everyone's focused on the right tasks that we need to be successful at. Awesome. Awesome. So let's go to the ladder. What's the most rewarding thing about being a leader? Uh, Seeing people succeed. Yeah. Seeing people learn. I think it's never rosy. Everyone talks about the rose-colored glasses that you look through it. It's tough. I think it's majority more challenges and struggles. But once you get a team in the right rhythm, it's kind of like watching a football game or I like, I play ice hockey. So I like to talk about the NHL more than the NFL, but it's like when you find that team that finds its rhythm, it's beautiful because it just starts taking on a life of its own. And when you can see the whole team around you, that you learn from them and they're working together and they're sharing, that's fantastic. But it takes a lot of work to get that, the team in that rhythm. And I think the struggle and the journey to get a team into that rhythm, to be successful and working with one another for the common goal, I think that's what I get really excited about. But it takes a lot of work to get to that point. 
Yeah. 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 So if you had a piece of advice to give our audience, what would that be? For the oil industry, it's not a negative industry. It's a phenomenal industry from engineering sciences. From a leadership perspective, I think just listen. Pause and take the time to listen to people. And when you're working with a team, big or small, carve out the time with individuals. A lot of people have a lot to say and a lot to share, and they don't necessarily share it right away. So I think when you can get people to share what they're really thinking and what they're really believing, you can get into that core passion. And when you can tap into that passion of the people, I think, you know, anything's possible. And it's not soft words. It's really understanding what drives the individuals. And then when the individuals are driven and you can collectively get them to work as a team, literally anything's possible. So let me ask you this. Why do you think they hold back? You know, yeah. <laughs> so I guess everyone's different. You seem pretty extroverted, Paige. You and I have never met face to face. You know, you're you're kind of you're kind I'm of actually, like my COVID. Yeah. <laughs> I'm actually introverted. Uh, so so you're doing a great job of enabling yourself to be extroverted. <laughs> but if I get back to on your question, everyone's different, and you know, you might have different personalities, and some people will choose to be a bit more reserved in a larger group, but they might have some of the best ideas. So I think just understanding and trying to read the situation is very, very beneficial. That's just be adaptive and, you know, have your eyes and your ears open and take a wide perspective of the whole team because you might get dominating voices inside some of the meetings and whatnot. And it might, you know, at the time sound like it's the best idea, but I think take a step back and and try to get a broader perspective because when you're in a leadership role, you need to take a lot more things into account. And then you also need to assess on how to make actions after that. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So what book influenced you the most? It might be a bit cliche now. I think it's pretty popular. Years and years ago when Simon Sinek came out with his Start With Why, it's a book that I bought for our team. It's just a book I like. It comes down to something that you can correlate with what's our purpose. And you can correlate this with what's our purpose as a team, what's your purpose as a person in your job, what's your purpose as your passion outside of work. And I tried to thread Simon Sinek's discussions into cultivating discussions with our team, much like the prior question you had is, you know, why people might not communicate. Everyone's different. So just trying to get them inspired to think about what we're doing as a broad and important purpose in the industry, but it also correlates into your personal life. So I really enjoy Simon Sinek because it's something that can be relatable across different nationalities. And so that's something easy, I think. I had a good book that we read. Another one was John Dewar, Measure What Matters, You know, one of the early investors in Google. And that's a bit more focused on, are you as a team collectively understanding what you need to get done and then structuring what you need to focus on to make sure that you're going to be successful? So two different books, but yeah. correlated, uh, given these to our team here in the past couple of years, when we have our team meetings to go through and trying to get some inspiration cultivated. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes complete sense. And they're two totally different books, as you said. So yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So what's your most used business tool? Talking. If I'm honest, I think the most used business tool, and it might seem a bit bizarre to say, talking to people. We realized this past year that, as I mentioned, I work personal experience. I can't speak for everyone. Is you know, you know, We went through the last couple of years living on the Zoom, Microsoft Teams engagement, and what typically we would be seeing people more frequently and communicating. So we can say communicating, but communicating through text or WhatsApp or 
messages. That's not the same as seeing people and shaking hands and talking to them yeah. across a table. And so I think talking and talking in person is a critical tool. And we as an organization, along with our CEO, Vitor Matissen, we've been talking about the importance for getting back, seeing everyone face to face. So the last few months, we've been trying a lot to travel because it's absolutely critical for giving feedback on what are we doing, why are we doing it, and how are we actually performing and giving feedback to the individuals and their teams. So um, I think it's something that I see a lot of companies I admire are back in the travel mode. And it's not about trying to not be conscious about the emissions from traveling around the world, but we're not meant to be locked up like animals, like the COVID. So it was not social. We are social beasts. Yes, yes, yes. And I think that says something for our industry because, you know, we have a lot of people that work in the field. We have a lot of people, you know, deals used to be made on the OTC floor, you know, and in person. And yeah, we're definitely social. And I feel that that's so important. So I agree. with And, you. and there's a different connection you form with this. Like there's relationships and contracts we had developed and signed virtually from 2020 to 2022. And it was just weird. Like I don't have a fancy word for it. It was weird. <laughs> and I can't say anything more than it's yeah. just you know, weird and bizarre are two words I've used too much through the last two years. But now, you know, we want to see our customers, our customers are oil companies. We want to actually meet the people we've been dealing with on email for the last few years and listen to them because that's why we're here. And that's what gets us up in the morning. And then with our team internally, we really understood that there was a divergence of how we thought we all understood each other. And I know this is commonplace for a lot of other companies that I've I've talked to and tried to engage with, and that's normal. So people shouldn't be upset. So if you're you're listening to this podcast, you shouldn't be upset that, okay, we didn't have perfect relationship for the last two years, but guess what? You can't fix the past. Go on with the future. Get on with it, you know, make a difference now. Yeah. 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 As I've probably said on this show before, I'm really tired of living through historical events. (laughs) (laughs) I, I would agree. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm not sure if this is applicable, but who is your most respected competitor? Uh, so it's a good question. We're kind of in a unique, for us, so the company, like our company has something that was a bit unique and it was invented by, as I mentioned, the three founders of the company, Bjornar and Hovard and Vidar, when they left Statoil. And this technology is quite game changing. So, you know, we do one thing exceptionally well. And I think there's a lot of other companies that do many things very well, like on a broader sense, most admirable. Our biggest competitor is right now is do nothing. So it's tough to say a company. The oil industry is in a transition for talking to become an energy industry. And that's different verticals, looking at hydrogen, looking at renewables, but it's still their oil and gas companies at the core. If you're not a utility as an electricity provider from a decade ago. But when you look at this, we are not an innovative industry. Everyone talks about this, but we are not. We are slow. We yeah. are super slow. So anyone that says I'm fast, fast compared to what? And it's all relative. So we do look at things in a different light. What's talked about publicly and at the shareholder meetings and the press meetings, it's not fast. Like if you compare us to, say, Musk at Tesla, when he got into running his Roadster And the adaptability saying, okay, we don't have the right battery packs. We don't have the right software. Let's do it ourselves. You know, and they moved at a pace that changed an industry, but they also moved with necessity and it was B2B, but it's slightly different. I can, I have a full respect for our customers, the oil and gas companies, you know, these are 
huge companies, there's a lot of capital risk to try and find hydrocarbons and develop them. But there's a lot, we can gain one, two, three, 4% improvements on innovation all over our industry. We just have to change our mindset. So this do nothing mentality, no, you know, I'm not going to get in trouble if I do nothing. I'm going to have a safe job if I do nothing. That is still rampant across our industry. So I think I don't admire our competitor called do nothing, but I would have to say that that competitor wins a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think it kind of goes back to the risk factor and the safety factor because, you know, because of how dangerous, you know, if something happens, a small thing happens, someone can die. And I think the industry has had the mindset of, well, nobody's going to get hurt. So why change? I mean, about seven years ago, when I was doing regulatory compliance and getting reports from the field that I'd have to do weekly activity reports on, you know, they were still using Excel for that. You know, I don't know if that's still a thing, but I bet some operators are still doing that because they won't embrace the new technology. Yeah. And that's a good point. And there's this transition. That's a really great example because there's so many different points where you could, where we could look and say, well, this is good enough and it's working. I think, you know, people and the safety of our people, the ladies and the gentlemen that are working in this industry or any other industrialized risk industry, it's the number one focus. And we take that as long as, you know, we look at safety and safety shouldn't be harmed and adopting new innovative technologies that don't add a safety implement or risk, pardon me. Yeah. I think the speed of making a decision without the bureaucracy is something that we can learn so much from other industries. Yeah. And if you look, how is Apple able to come up with a new iPhone every year? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. We take a decade. So it's kind of, I think we're in this also a very interesting transition because the amount of capital that's required to set up the oil and gas industry or, or say a wind farm or a nuclear plant, we're talking billions of dollars. So it's so significant from a fostering the fiduciary responsibility for the shareholders on taking this money. But there are room for improvement across the industry. And I think this is where it's interesting to see the generation coming up now where, you know, those that are getting into oil and gas, and I highly recommend it because you can learn so much across many different disciplines, you know, they're with a different view. I look at my daughter, you know, she looks at things completely different than I would have when I was 15. So I think it's a very exciting time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think they embrace things much quicker oh. than the boomer generation. It's insane. It's insane on how fast. They're like, why are you scared? Just try it. And it's just like, watch my 12-year-old. And, you know, he just jumps on the MacBook and he's like, ta 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 trying it. He's like, yeah, see, it's no problem. <laughs> it's beautiful for me. I just have such joy watching it because it's so different than how I was. And I'm trying to actually embrace just trying a lot of different things. Like they were, you know, ChatGPT has been all over the news for several weeks across the world. And so just having fun, playing with the kids, trying to learn different things. And I think nothing back when you're you know, leading teams and as you as an individual to try and keep growing, just don't be scared to learn something. Just try it. And it's okay to fail. Like you try something just to learn. So you keep yourself on that edge that you're not scared to do something different. And not doing it just because you want to do something different, but because, you know, just keep testing yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, all you're going to do is learn. Exactly. And you're going to learn. Maybe you don't like it, and you, but you tried it. So at least you can say, hey, I tried it. When I was growing up, my dad, we grew up 
you know, pretty humble. Mom and dad worked their butts off for us. My dad, you know, his, my grandpa, I grew up through the depression. So very, very humble. He raised us and said, look, we didn't have money to try all these different sports when we were growing up at all. So he's like, all I want you to do is tell me you'll try every sport at least once because I'll work overtime and pay for that. And that really stuck with me to now. I tell my kids the same story about what grandpa had said. And it was really good because he just said, look, I at least can pay you to get used hockey gear and you can go play hockey, but I want you to try it. And I loved hockey. And he did that for every other sport just to try because he didn't get to do that when he was a kid. So, yeah, yeah. You sound like an elder millennial. <laughs> <laughs> Probably somewhere in there. You can tag me with something that some kind of title. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So what is your most important lesson learned? Patience and listening. I think. I've learned to try to slow down on when I'm listening and not react so fast. I think it's a typical problem for men, to be honest. <laughs> my, my daughter and my mother and my wife will tell me, I think we are predisposed <laughs> to being a bit too reactionary to jump to a solution. So if I take that in my personal life, as I just said, I'm too fast to try and find a solution. But from business perspective, just pause and think a bit more. When things are moving so fast, it's ever more important that you have time to think. And, you know, sometimes people say you got to think fast. And yeah, we can think fast. But when things are very important, you need to pause and take moments and actually without the noise and the chaos and just digest what your complex situations. So take the time. I stress this for many people is that if you don't need to respond instantly, take 30 minutes, take an hour, think about these challenges, especially when you're looking at the business and, and especially when people are involved. And then patience. Things take longer than you would hope. Don't get frustrated right away and don't get discouraged, especially if you're leading a team. You got to think, okay, what have we achieved and where are we going? Because if you look back, okay, over the last three months, what have we achieved? Are we in the right direction? And that's all about the assessment. And that's why I like the Measure What Matters book with John Dewar, whatever book floats your boat in terms of structured understanding of where you're going to go. But having a patience with the team to understand, okay, we are doing the right thing assess the data. If we need to make some changes, do that. But also having the firm patience to say, it's the right thing. Keep on track. We are going in the right direction, provided you are, of course, going in the right direction. But yeah, patience and listening. Yeah. Yeah. Because when it comes to listening, you know, you want to come up with the solution right away. You just want to oh, fix horrible. it. Yeah, I'm horrible. <laughs> it happens. It happens to the best of us. So why is your role now important to the future of our industry? Good question. I would like to think I'm pretty humble, so I could say that maybe my role is not important. So maybe it's, I like to play devil's advocate with our team and, and the family looking at it. If I think my role or a role like mine, rather than just talking about me, but in general, the ability to communicate challenging applications of technology to potential customers or ongoing customers is critical. So if we're going to make innovation adopted in any industry, if it's if it's in the oil and gas industry here for reservoir management, or if it's in you know autonomous cars, there's a bridge that needs to be developed and a bridge that needs to be trusted from people on the other side. If you take the autonomous cars, there's a lot of you know bad stories about crashes and accidents, and this is it's tragic, but this is a learning development phase that's going through for a greater good. If you can you know get things into a different phase, so if it's something like that, or if it's something in the oil and gas industry, I think. You need to have all of the right different persons in different roles that can help. There's people that are developing the technology and there's people that are helping to take what these excellent engineers and scientists have developed 
and then help, uh, I guess, in my role is to communicate this to the end users at the oil and gas companies. And so we all play a, a critical role as a team, but I think it's really important that we have that bridge of communication from technology into application for the end users. So it actually does get adopted. Yeah, that makes complete sense to me. Okay, so let me ask you this. And this is a new question I've added to my list. What are your thoughts about telling someone about this industry that doesn't understand the industry? I like this question. So the first thing I think, when you have someone that usually is not from this industry, they're usually thinking we're villains. We're the bad guy, you know, we're the negative person and, you know, the bad kids. But when you step back and you look at it, you know, Ikea, take a walk through Ikea, Sweden's favorite store that's exported around the world. It's petroleum products everywhere. So if you look around and you need to take a step and say, okay, it's not just about the energy industry. It's also about a couple of things of respecting that what these products have actually given. They've given, you know, many nations the ability to rise out of poverty They've given the ability to actually start funding the development of nations, protect yourself for war. There's a variety of benefits that have come from oil and gas, the transition from from the coal industry, so to speak. So when we go through these energy industrial transitions, most people don't realize the excessive cost that's going to go into it. So take the U.S. grid. You know, there's trillions of dollars that's required over decades to upgrade the grid and then also continue to invest the transition to be able to handle all of the electrification. So this will take a lot of money. Where does this come from? Because I didn't see the money tree growing up in my backyard when growing up. So it's also trying to discuss with people that you need to think. You need to think, okay, well, there's pharmaceutical products that require petroleum products. There's plastics and TV and you know the case that makes your computer monitor. It's all yeah, everything we're talking on right now. Exactly. So it, it's not so simple. And I think it's just more of trying, people's ignorance is, (laughs) never ceases to amaze me. And so when I talk to people to your question, is just trying to get them to understand, it's like, wow, because most people just don't know. We had this the first year we moved to Abu Dhabi, I was pretty shocked. My daughter, we moved here several years ago, just before Christmas 2015. And she came back from school and said, Papa, I got this question, oil and gas is bad, I got to write this report. And so I printed off one page and it was a barrel of oil in the middle. I think it was from Shell and it had all of these subsets of what comes from one barrel of oil. And we need to improve as an industry, full stop. Can we reduce our emissions? Yes. Can we improve? Yes. But on a practical side from you know the society level, we need to make a transition. You know, There's nuclear, there's wind, there's solar. We need all of these different verticals. Just depends where you are in the world. There's not one paintbrush for one set of canvas. You need to think, okay, where am I in the world? Do I have the blessed ability of hydropower? Fantastic. But guess what? If you're in the desert, there's no hydro. So you don't have dams. So it's just, you have to be practical. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, you know, I ran across, I was in the Denver airport and I was talking to a teenager that was sitting at my table and she knew about the Willow Project. That surprised the hell out of me. Yeah. I know. I'm like, I think it's because it's easier that you can get information in five seconds. It's Mm -hmm. on your phone. Mm -hmm. I was really taken aback that a teenager would know something about oil and gas. So I think it's getting better. I think it's, we've finally gotten to the point where we're talking back to people instead of just taking it. Yeah. This is a good point. I listened to a couple of your podcasts. I know. So 
over at Innovex, Adam Anderson. I liked what he did with this fossil fueled these concerts and I listened to the podcast of Liberty. You know, I'm halfway around the world, so it's it's a bit different regime here in the Middle East because, you know, this is it's different than the US. It's you know, it's run so well structured over here with the national oil companies between Adnoc and Saudi Aramco, PDO uh-huh. and Oman. Very, very different in a different respect for the industry and what the country has gained. So I've learned to get a, a really nice and diverse perspective. But when you look at this, most people are just, they just don't understand. And there's a huge amount of learning that needs to go through. So we have, much like the you know Liberty and Innovexes, we have done a poor job educating society. And it wasn't required before, because like you said, there wasn't the iPhone or the Samsung floating around where people could just run on Twitter and, and Facebook and get information. Now there's copious amounts of information and a lot of it is narrated to, you know, anyone can write an article. So the misinformation is a challenge to try and overcome, but guess what? That's life. We have to overcome it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of podcasts, do you have a favorite one? Uh, so there are two very different ones I've been listening to. I like your guys' podcast. Thank you. They're really nice. I like the diverse audience. There's two different ones I've been listening to for a while now. So as we lived in Norway for several years, our heart has a big tie to there. And there's one in good company with Nicholas Tengen. He's a CEO for the Norwegian Sovereign Wealth Fund, the Norges Bank Investment Bank there, if I'm saying it correctly. So in good company, he interviews the CEOs of the businesses that they invest their massive sovereign wealth fund in. So they had the CEO for Total, they had Bill Gates on there as CEO, and it's really diverse. The CEO of H&M, Harley-Davidson. That was a very good perspective on a broad range from a leadership perspective. So I liked listening to those because it was such a different set of industries. And then the one I listened to for fun throughout after COVID started, when I'm walking our, we got a COVID dog, unfortunately, is <laughs> the All In podcast. And I stumbled on it by chance. I thought it was about poker. Turns out it was about a little bit about poker and a lot about industry and, and fun. So the All In podcast and then In Good Company would be my two very enjoyable podcasts I look forward to when they come out. Awesome. Awesome. Glad to hear. So thanks for again for joining me, Brent. If people want to reach out to you and or get to know more about inflow control, how might they go about doing that? I am open. They can just shoot me an email at brent.bruff, B-R-O-U-G-H, at inflowcontrol.no. Find me on LinkedIn and try to get back to people as fast as I can. And yeah, I'd love to talk to people about how we can help them or if they're just curious to reach out and talk about our industry. Awesome. Awesome. Great. All right. Well, that concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil and Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.